From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to the BG Ideas podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. My name is Grace Strain, Assistant Director for Diversity and Belonging at BGSU, and I'm happy to be guest hosting a special episode today in collaboration with LGBTQ programs and Women's History Month. Thank you to Dr. Jolie Sheffer of ICS for allowing us to guest host this episode. We appreciate the opportunity for collaboration. This special episode of the BG Ideas podcast is being recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic. That means we're not in studio, but instead are talking via Zoom and phone. Our sound quality will be different as a result, but we want to continue to share with our listeners some of the amazing work being done on and around our campus. We at ICS and LGBTQ programs think it's important to celebrate great ideas. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Lady J, the Director of Programming, Education, and Outreach for Studio S117 in Cleveland, Ohio, the official drag historian for the Austin International Drag Festival, the creator and host of the podcast Untucking the Past, and the keynote speaker for the 2021 Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Research Symposium here at BGSU. A pillar of the Cleveland LGBTQIA community, she represents the city on the national drag scene and leads locally through activism, entertainment, and education. Her dissertation, From RuPaul to the Love Ball, the Mainstreaming of Drag in the 1990s, has been downloaded over 3,800 times, and her work as a historian has been featured everywhere from Vice.com to the Journal of the American Musicological Society. Dr. Lady J joins me today to discuss their work in the field of drag history, the politics and inclusion of women, both transgender and cisgender, in drag communities, and how she serves diverse LGBTQ populations today in the Cleveland area. So thank you so much for joining me, Lady J. Um, before we dive into the fascinating topic of drag history, I do want to touch on the work that you're doing with Studio West 117. Could you tell me a little bit about your role and the vision for Studio West? So um, thank you, first of all, so much for having me, Gray. I'm really excited to be here, and I'm really excited about the upcoming events that we're going to be doing together for uh, Bowling Green. So Studio West 117 is an LGBTQ hub for the Northeast Ohio area and specifically Cleveland and Lakewood especially. We're going to be doing everything from supporting LGBTQ plus local businesses, especially starting with BIPOC businesses first. We're working with our business tenants to provide ways of entry that are low barrier of entry, everything from, you know, working on subsidies for business tenants to working on a podcast and broadcast studio. We're going to have a maker space, an artist co-op, a coffee co-op. So there will be a lot of different opportunities for people to break into kind of gig-based um, jobs that may require a lot of equipment on the front end and to use high-end equipment for a really reasonable price that is affordable to you know the average trans person. And that's really important to me because you know one of the ways that I was able to survive uh, for a while after grad school 
was, you know, doing landscaping and handyman work for people that would lend me their tools. I knew these trades, but I didn't really know any way that I could afford a chainsaw and like 20 different pieces of equipment for landscaping and, you know, a thousand different things for sanding stairs and painting and da 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 So this is a, a way we can start with that. On top of that, we're going to have five different venues, everything from the chamber and the symposium, which are, you know, smaller kind of bar-sized venues, up through the 1,200-seat theater, somewhere between 800 and 1,200-seat theater in the Fantasy Theater. We're going to have the Fieldhouse, which is going to have a gymnasium. It's going to have an LGBTQ Youth Sports League. We're going to have a restaurant run by Juan Vergara that is a Colombian restaurant that's going to be managed by uh, two different LGBTQ folks. We're going to have the first rooftop patio in Lakewood. It's going to be 2,500 square feet. We're going to have an outdoor area between the two buildings. So we can do, you know, you could start with a brunch in the field house, go through a queer flea market in the alley, into a children's theater show, you know, on Sunday afternoon, into, you know, a drag show that evening or a burlesque show that night. Really a place where you can spend all day and a place for everybody to feel safe and welcome. And it's primarily a place that is first and foremost for the LGBTQ plus community and also very welcoming to allies. But this is really the queer community space first. And I really love that we're working to really make sure that, you know, Cleveland is a majority black city. And in most of the, the businesses and organizations I've been a part of in my time here, whether it's been activism or education or just working like an hourly job, you know, you don't often see black management. You don't often see black leadership. And it's because those opportunities have been denied. You know, we live in, this is one of the most redlined cities in the country, you know, Racism is tremendous here. And I grew up going to Atlanta, going to a place where you saw, you know, black artists, you saw black managers, you saw black leadership. And I'm really excited that like with this job, I've been able to form a five person hiring committee that is 60 percent trans and non-binary. I think it's 80 percent people of color, especially heavy right now. It's 80 percent black. And I think that's really important because, you know, most young black folks who are a huge portion of the population here are interviewing with people who do not look like them, who do not understand what they're going through. And we're thinking really about the multi-layered issues that affect people to make sure that the hiring doesn't look inclusive just at the level of baristas and bartenders, but at the level of management, leadership, all of those things. And that's one of the things that honestly is the reason I signed on with this project, because my first questions were, you know, things like this that are huge often tend to just go with the easiest thing, which is to pick the oldest, whitest people who have the most typical resume to create a very standard thing. And that's what I love about every time we bring in more people is for once I'm able to say, let's take this perspective or this problem that you are having as a community member and let's fold this into the structure. Let's think about this on the front end. And during COVID, we've had a lot of extra time to really think about those things, to really make sure that everyone feels like they are included. And that also comes down to people with disabilities. We're going to be one of the only places around, if not the only place in this area that has uh, fully accessible stages, fully accessible dressing rooms, and this was something that when I started to book one of my drag kids who's a queer puppeteer, a young guy who's uh, uh, used a wheelchair, you know, it was impossible just getting him in on a ground floor bar because a lot of them have a lip that goes up or a step that goes down. You know, we tried getting him in the back door of this one place. We realized the back door has a step down. And even if he came into the kitchen, which we were going to try, 
the galley entry from behind the bar is not big enough for a wide chair like his. So luckily, Nate is able to walk some, so we were able to get him into the bar. But once I started booking him, it was a real eye-opener as far as, like, we need to make sure that these things are taken care of in this venue. And the exciting thing is, you know, we've been in contact with a festival that's specifically for performers with disabilities. And we are one of the first places or the first place that they've been able to bring this to Cleveland, which they wanted to do for a long time that will be able to actually accommodate not just on the audience level, but on the stage level. And that'll be everywhere from the chamber and the symposium and the fantasy dance club up through the fantasy theater, the field house, all of it. So like, that's a big part of what I think is really important. And there's about 9 million other things I could talk about, but what we really want when you look at the programming for this whole place is I want it to look like it's a nightly takeover of space by different queer folks. So when you look at the schedule, it looks like nobody owns the club. That's one of my most important things is trying to make it feel like there's not a centralized thing there. So yeah, I think that's a pretty good short brief overview of Studio West. <laughs> no, I mean, that's fantastic. I, you know, it's this way that you're creating this you know, LGBTQ plus hub. It's so much more than just the hub itself, right? It's all the people behind it. And I really appreciate the way that you talked about centering, you know, BIPOC communities, you know, so Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the process. So you, you've talked a little bit about this, but we, of course, know that due to COVID, you know, face-to-face -face interaction and truly all interaction has been limited um, the majority of, of last year into this year. And of course, a lot of drag and LGBTQ plus community building is about having those physical spaces that you talked about. So how has this, you know, shifted the way that Studio West does their work and how you build and maintain community? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It was really interesting because when I came on to the project, initially just as a, a temporary thing to see, you know, like, how is this going to work and all that, you know, we were totally thinking about like doing big events in June. We were starting to plan out our pride events and book that out. And I'd already started booking people. And then all of a sudden everything gets locked down. COVID comes along and the plus side of it is it's given us a lot of time to really do those inclusivity elements, to really have those conversations, to have a five hour long conversation between me and community members. And the other thing that's really interesting is because we have this space, we're able to do like virtual events. So we just did our very first virtual event in December. It was called Aquarium. And so we wanted to account for covid so what we were originally going to do was we were going to have some in person, about four tables, maybe 16 people of four each with dividers. And we built the stage. So the whole entire front of the stage is covered by plexiglass now. So I wanted to basically create an aquarium that we could perform in, kind of bringing in the idea of like, how do we incorporate what's happening in a fun way? And so our whole first show was all, you know, underwater themed, sea themed. We had a giant clamshell that our creative and technical director, Dan Hausman, built, along with all these kind of set props. We had stalactites that looked like coral, you know, that he had made out of insulation foam. We really had an amazing cast. And that's what we're going to be planning to do for the rest of this year right now. We may have some in-person events that don't look like a show, that involve a lot of distance, and that are, are actually to-go events that we'll be releasing maybe later in the year. But we're planning on right now, basically every show we do for the rest of this year right now is planned to be all digital. So we're going to be pre-recording the performers one by one so we can edit. And like, that's the great thing is it also allows us that yes, performers can come in and just use the space to record that. But also if people want to, we can do things where we can edit more stuff. We can make things more like a music video. 
And that's kind of what we're working towards in the second show that we're going to be announcing that I'm calling Icebox. So this time we're using the front of the, the plexiglass again as an ice theme. And that's kind of what we're going to be doing as we go forward is kind of keep trying to reinvent this until we find a way towards live stuff. And we're, we're hoping that we might be able to do live socially distanced stuff maybe in January of next year. And maybe, maybe some this year, but you know, it's, it's really going to vary on what we find out in the next few months. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that's really great about our community, especially is I think there is an instinct to pivot, you know, so really to just adapt and, and not to quote Tim Gunn, but to make it work right in the moment and do what needs to be done. So I'm going to take a, a quick break right now, and then we'll come back and chat a little bit more about your research and the work you do with drag history. Thanks so much for listening to BJ Ideas Podcast. We'll be right back. If you are passionate about big ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Hello, and welcome back to the BG Ideas Podcast. Today, we're talking to Dr. Lady J about her work as a drag historian and educator. So, Lady J, as a scholar of drag and gender myself, I honestly can't hold us back any longer. Let's jump into some drag. So, first, could you provide, and I appreciate this is a difficult question, a working definition of drag as you understand it for our listeners? Okay, so yeah, this is a question that I get a lot, and it is one that I find really difficult. It's one that I was asked a lot by my advisor and my my whole team on my dissertation to really try to define more. Really what I think drag boils down to is its historical narrative, because there's a lot of cross-dressing and crossing the gender binary that doesn't really fit in with the timeline of drag that stands on its own as another part of another tradition. And I think that's one of the things that gets collapsed a lot in the histories is, you know, things that are theatrical cross-dressing that aren't actually like drag. They're not informed by queerness, you know, like movies where like some like it hot, where people have to get into drag for a reason that is motivated by the plot of the story rather than I like drag this is part of like my personhood and my artistry, but really I would say drag is number one, an art form in the same way that sculpting or painting or any of those things are, or theater or music. It is its own artistic discipline that kind of deserves its own space in that way. But it has to do with playing with gender and characters more importantly. But I think for me, straight people can do drag and that can be part of the tradition. But straight people cross-dressing in movies and things like that often comes from a really different place. And I think that drag at its core is inherently queer. I think that it really comes from a place of transness before there was a word for transness. The history reflects that with cases like Bolton and Park, which you can Google very easily. That's a case of two people that both lived as women on the stage and off the stage who were assigned male at birth. They were, you know, carted in front of a judge. They were stripped nude um, as part of this. And one of them actually ended up performing later on with another person who lived their life as a man who was assigned female at birth, who had also had a career on the stage as a man and who was married to a woman. And for me, that, that looks, even though we don't consider, we can't use the word trans because that wasn't indicative of the times. But what I see in that moment is two trans people 
seeing themselves in each other and seeing a way to work together. And most of the people that you see in early drag are people who are gender nonconforming on and off the stage. Uh, and I think that there is also a lot of room for discussion about like the wibbly wobbliness of the term drag and like female impersonation. And there's so much respectability politics that goes into those things. You know, there are many people, if you look at the nineties, especially who would say, especially trans women who would say, I am not a drag queen. I'm a female impersonator because drag queen in their head was a man in a dress. But again, that's because men in dresses were the ones who were controlling that conversation. But yeah, I would say drag is really about queer people creating character personas on stage and playing with gender is part of that. But the one thing I do want to say that I always think is really important is saying that drag is about crossing the gender binary is like saying that architecture is about making a brick. It's absolutely part of what is necessary to do the other thing. But most of the people I know who are performing drag are not thinking about the gender element the most. They're thinking about character creation. They're thinking about storytelling. They're thinking about a song that they're doing, the narrative, dance styles. That's really what drag is. It's a queer performance genre. Well, you know, I really hope that we have some architecture majors tuning in to appreciate that metaphor. So, you know, you kind of talked already a little bit about this, but, you know, thinking of drag as a performance of, of gender, but also character so what does drag have to say about identity as a whole or thinking about gender in relationship to other categories of identity? Oh, that's a really, really tough one. Um, what does drag have to say about identity as a whole? For me, I think it's about how different people experience it. Like I have a very hard time saying drag does things or drag is things because drag is so individual and it changes a lot. You know, like even when we think about female impersonation is what most people think of when they think of drag. And we think of like alternative drag that's bearded drag or cis women doing drag as something that's brand new. All of those things have been present at a minimum. And I guarantee you they were there before. I just haven't or can't think of them off the top of my head. But at a minimum, like cis women have been doing drag since the 60s. Bearded queens have existed since the 60s. Like all of those things have existed since the 1960s. We had a countercultural movement that happened in drag in the same way that it happened in the rest of the world, in every other art form. And it fully changed our art form. And so I think what drag has to say about identity very much has to do with the individual. So like for some trans women, for instance, some trans women get in drag and they feel more fully themselves. They feel confirmed by the drag and they want to be a heightened version of themselves on stage. For me, as a non-binary trans woman, I did like pretty girl drag for like the first five years. I don't think a lot of people might question the first two or three years of that what I'd call it pretty. But like I was doing like, you know, a, a femme face. And what I found was that once I saw myself as a trans woman in that face, I was like, well, this isn't what I wanted. I, wa I came here to do something that was about building a creation that's a, a you know, an insane, over-the-top, heroic version of myself. And so, you know, that's why like Lady J, the character, you know, my eyes are as big as my forehead. My mouth is huge because it's about my character for me, drag is about becoming intimidating or becoming a big giant ball of light that people can see themselves in. So I think it just really varies based on person to person and what you're trying to, it's the same thing as art. It's like saying, how does drag, what does art have to do with identity? Well, it's going to have a lot to do with the genre and the person and the aesthetic that they're going for and what their goals are. 
Absolutely. And I, I really encourage folks, if they haven't already um, seen Lady J's uh, character, to to look you up on Instagram. It's the only Lady J, correct? Yeah. Yes, because your makeup, your persona is absolutely fantastic. So when, when folks hear drag, and you've already started to break this down, you know, many people might only make the connection to you know RuPaul or RuPaul's Drag Race or other you know dominant representations of quote unquote drag. So, as a drag historian, what do you think gets missed in our popular understanding of you know, sort of the timeline of drag we have in the U.S.? The timeline is, I think, number one, the first thing would be that the timeline generally says the history is about people who crossed from male to female, female to male. And that's not really been the case for a lot of history. And I think the timeline also makes it seem like trans women are something new to drag when that's not been the case. A lot of drag history's timeline has unfortunately been about respectability politics. And it's been about cis men's perspectives. You know, even the book that I cite in my dissertation as being like foundational to my understanding of drag history, which was Lawrence Senelik's uh, The Changing Room, is virulently transphobic. It was really hard reading where a lot of people would say, you know, when they talk about the metaphorical magic of drag, uh, many people try to say that being a trans woman and having any kind of hormonal adjustment or any kind of surgery somehow alters what you're doing. And I just don't really ever understand how that makes any sense. Also, because as long as there have been trans women getting pump in their face, there have been cis men in the same industry getting pump in their face. And frankly, like I've had some very intense toe-to-toe screaming matches with some of my very closest friends who have had this fight with me about, you know, the place of trans women in drag, where I had to say to this person, and it was really a hateful moment on my part, but it came out of this whole discussion about trans women's place in drag and, and this person saying that trans women deserve to be have a different place. They're a totally separate thing. And I was like, you can't sit here and tell me that you think that trans women in drag is somehow juicing. And I poked this person's face and I said, when your lip looks like that, don't sit here and act like it's not acceptable for us to get work done when you get work done. When the same pageants who disallow trans women allow silicone injections above the neckline. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of these weird things that have come up, you know, and, and the other thing I would say is people talk about drag as if it's always transgressive. I think that's one of the biggest, biggest lies out there. Drag absolutely often, often, often reifies and stands up the gender binary. It says it is about, I'm a man who can also be a woman. It's, and then the version of womanhood that's presented is absolutely like a stereotype. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that high glamour drag is inherently misogynist. I don't. But I do think, and I don't think men doing drag is inherently misogynist, but I do think that many people think I'm, um, I am portraying a woman, so I'm paying homage, when in fact, if you're creating a sarcastic kind of hateful version of this person, are you paying homage or are you actually just creating a misogynist tirade against what you think women are? You know, I think there is much space for all of that. And that's kind of the thing that I want people to understand about drag is that our discussion should be the same as art. We don't call art misogynist because there's misogynist art. We don't say that all art is not misogynist because there's non-misogynist art. We take it on a case-by-case, aesthetic-by-aesthetic, genre-by-genre basis, and that's what drag deserves. Thank you. So 
thinking about the role of women in drag that you, you touched on a bit, you know, going back to the 60s, what does it mean for you to be a woman um, and taking that category broadly to include transgender and cisgender women um, who performs in drag? For me, it's what has helped me find my community. It's what helped me find my sisters, my partner, my best friends. The people who understand me most understand that I am most me, not now, but when I'm fully Lady J. Like it was, it was astonishing to me how different it was from my, the developers and the other people I work with at Studio West who had met me in drag once when we went to New York, but I, it was 5 a.m. when I was getting ready that day. I was super nervous. You know, I didn't know them very well. But when we did our first show, they were like, oh my God, you're a totally different person. And I was like, yeah, because you know what happens when I get in drag? Even with all this crazy look on, my dysphoria goes away. I'm not looking at, you know, a 35-year-old person who has not gone on hormone therapy yet and who wishes they'd done it a lot sooner. You know, I see what I want to be. I see this heroic, you know, trans goddess of rock and roll, you know, this kiss like Wendy O. Williams, not to be confused with Wendy Williams, like character. I always wanted to be covered in armor, you know, like with a sword or, a, you know, something. I'm a, I want to see myself as a protector because I grew up in a house where my mother was abused violently by my father. And I'm positive. That's why Lady J exists. That's why I do what I do is because most of my career has been about creating someone that someone like that could never touch and creating someone that could have saved my mom in that situation. That could have saved all of us little kids from having to deal with all of that. That's a lot of what Lady J is, is me trying to provide people with some semblance of there's a future, there's hope, there's promise. And also, if you feel angry, like... I'm going to get angry for you here on stage. I'm going to smash things. I did a number last year where I was Lorena Bobbitt and I was chopping an eggplant with a, a freshly purchased sharp butcher knife into the audience. You know, if you want to see some stuff that is anti-misogynist, I'll give it to you because I, a lot of my drag is about my um, anger about those things. It's about processing out, you know, the pain and nonsense that I have seen and had inflicted upon me. You know, I'm a three-time sexual assault survivor. A lot of that anger goes into Lady J. And that's that's how I get it out. And that's what that's what's fun. And that's the hard part about COVID is like I'm not on a stage in front of an audience, like doing all that all the time. And, you know, maintaining sanity is harder without that. I, I really appreciate that. I, I think when we you know, have that conversation about what drag is, you know, when we started initially and thinking that some people believe it's only cis men doing this kind of across gender performance. I think we miss out on all the all the personality, all of our experiences that get put into our art form. So I really appreciate you kind of being open about that. So I'm going to end with what I know is another difficult question. I know I've been full of them today. But who is, if you could just pick out one, one woman in drag's history that you think everybody should know about, should go learn about right now? That's really tough. Um... I would say there's like maybe three that I, I think of a lot. One of them I would say is the person that like, if you don't know a lot about drag history, go look up Crystal LaBeja. Crystal LaBeja is the person who, you know, look up the movie, the queen and look at the argument that she has with mother flawless Sabrina. What you will see there is a world in which black Queens had been denied real advancement, had been denied bigger money, had been denied bigger opportunities 
And this queen took this moment on film and took an enormous risk that could have made her look terrible, that could have ruined everything for her by saying, you know what? I don't care that this documentary is here. And in fact, I think it's probably good that this documentary is here. And I'm going to confront this pageant system about its racist practices and about the fact that I should have been the winner and I was the rightful winner. And then sadly, what a lot of people will see in that is just an angry black woman. All they'll see is that. And they'll just be like, well, I don't understand why she's like that. What is she so mad about? Why does she think she deserved to win? The reality is this was the only black queen who had ever won uh, Queen of Manhattan, which was like one of the biggest things in the world back then at that time for her. And so she was winning pageants that only white pageant girls were winning. And that's one of the things that we, in addition to saying drag is not misogynist, is a mythology. The other mythology is that drag is not racist. The drag world has been very racist in the past. But what you saw back in the day was that black queens just did not, you were expected to lighten up and whiten up your skin and, you know, perform as white celebrities for the most part, or light-skinned celebrities, and then you were still going to lose, no matter how well you did, because they wanted your audience, they wanted you to participate, they wanted you to bring your people who would pay the tab, but they didn't want to allow you anything real, they didn't want to allow any of that. And so when you watch her confront Mother Flawless and, you know, tell her, yeah, I am showing my color, and I have a right to show my color, the entirety of this separate world of black competition comes about because of this moment of just complete, I'm done with this. I'm frustrated with this and I will not do this anymore. I will not be this for you. And so being able to move on with that, I think she's one of the most important people. And aside from her, I would say, if you know a lot about drag history and you already know about her, look up Lady Chablis. You'll find out a ton of things. She was a trans woman. She never used the word drag queen and didn't like it, but I would still say she's part of the history because that is the culture she was a part of. And she did own like 12 pageant titles. Awesome. And, and you said there was a third as well in your top three. Oh, I forgot what the other one was now. Um, the other, I know one of the other ones I was going to say was to look up the women who were part of the coquettes, just look up the coquettes and see that there was a troop of cis women, trans people, black people, white people, babies, adults, the whole gamut. And that was, you know, the sixties. And again, everybody thinks they're reinventing the wheel now. And it's because we have no awareness of our own history. It's like as if we were trying to create art and all artists were trying to create art without having any idea that, that cubism exists before or that impressionism existed before or any of these things. That's kind of the world we exist in. And that's a lot of why I try to do so much drag education, not just because we deserve to know our own history, but because it helps us get better as artists and not just keep repeating the same stuff. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I really think that Crystal Labesha is a wonderful figure to highlight. And The Queen is a very interesting documentary. Um, if a little dated, still, I think, worth a watch, if only for Crystal's scene at the end. I think it's important for people to see how bland some of the white drag scene was. Like, that's important. It's important for you to see the people that were getting somewhere, despite not really doing much. Because <laughs> that speaks volumes about the history itself. I think we definitely all have a lot of work to do in kind of uncovering the the real or perhaps the realer history of drag. So, Dr. Lady J, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat about the work that you do. This has been a fantastic conversation that I think could be twice or three times the length. Um, you have so many wonderful things to say, and I'm so glad that we were able to bring you to campus to share your keynote um, with us for the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Research Symposium. So I do want to give credit to our wonderful producers for this podcast, Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza. 
Marco deserves extra thanks for sound editing in these very challenging conditions. We really appreciate you, Marco. I want to give a special thank you to the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and to Dr. Jolie Sheffer for allowing us to host this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe to the BG Ideas podcast wherever you listen. And of course, follow LGBTQ plus programs on Facebook backslash BGSU LGBTQRC and on Instagram at BGSU underscore LGBTQ. And there you can stay up to date in all of our programming and our events. But above all else, stay safe and thanks for listening.